<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, if you're a buddy of Donald Trump's, you can get away with murder. It looks like Saudi Arabia just did. What do you say? Hello, everybody. How was your weekend? Hope it was a good one. And you are ready to dive into another big week here on this Monday, October 15. So good to see you today. Thank you for being part of the part of the program. The Bill Press Show, booming out to you live, coast to coast from uh, our studio right here in Washington, D.C. Hello, hello, hello. Good to see you today. And uh, we have a, this is a little rainy, rainy, rainy day here in Washington, just like it was yesterday in Washington, D.C. But um, we'll get through it. We're inside. We're dry. And we are with you, wherever you are in this great land of ours. Uh, we are there with you uh, on the radio, online, and on television. With all the news of the day, yes, indeed, uh, Donald Trump with an amazing interview with Leslie Stahl. Boy, she's such a great journalist. She just keeps getting better and better. Leslie Stahl on uh, 60 Minutes last night with Donald Trump, where, uh, among other things, uh, he sort of dismissed the fact that his defense secretary might leave because he said, yeah, he's kind of a Democrat anyway, so, like, who needs him around? Uh, is he saying that the defense secretary is evil? <laughs> That's what he says Democrats are. At any rate, lots and lots to talk about, lots of news to catch up on. And uh, thanks to Peter for being here on uh, Friday. I'm back with you today, so send us your comments on the news of the day, at BP Show. Your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We jump right in, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. I marked this story just for you, Bill. I know you're a big right. fan of the I'm royal right. family. There's some big news this morning. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced that they are expecting their first child together. Another royal baby is on the way. That's about all the news we have on it. Uh, it's just a couple months after their wedding. They got married yeah, on May 19th, right. so they wasted no time. 
uh, and they are. Uh, she is. She is pregnant. Harry so. and Megers. Megan. Yeah. Preggers. Preggers. Yeah. Good. Megers right. and Preggers. There you go. Let's talk about some baseball playoffs, Bill, because we had a lot of action over the weekend. Let's just leave it at this. Both of the series are tied at one game apiece. The Brewers won game one against the Dodgers. Dodgers came back and won uh, the second game. So that series is tied one to one. The Astros and the Red Sox saw Houston win the first game. And then last night, the Red Sox bounced back to win that game. So that series is also tied at one game apiece. Good playoffs. Huh? So far, yeah. so good. It's been, there's been a couple of really, really good games. Aside from one of the Astros Red Sox games, they're like one run games. So yeah, they're, yeah. they're close. They're close. And, and, and they, they kept it that way for most of the game. Also, uh, shock news. Well, not really a shock because we talked about how bad Sears was doing, but it's a shock in the sense that Sears has filed for bankruptcy protection early this morning. They're 125 years old. One of the nation's largest retailers at one point, they are filing for bankruptcy protection and the CEO, Eddie Lampert, is stepping down. Now, they said that what they're going to do in the immediate term is they are closing another 142 stores God. towards the end of are the year. Are there any left? I, I mean, I don't know how many there are total. I have to look, take a look and see. But 142 stores, I mean, there's a good chance that one near you is going to be closing. Uh, they said that they are expected to begin liquidation sales very, very shortly, which I can imagine might sort of tie in with the holiday shopping stuff to try well, to get rid of all that. We've you know? said this uh, so many times before, but this really is the passing of an era. Yeah. I mean, there was one time when when I was growing up, I mean, there was Sears Roebuck, and that was it. Sure. And the catalog, it was the catalog was huge, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was Neiman Marcus if you could afford it, right? And, <laughs> and if you could get to Dallas. Otherwise, for the average American, working-class Americans, it was Sears Roebuck. Yeah, yeah. And now? And now? We just go online. They're gone. Now it's Walmart. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, got some good news today. Neither Donald Trump nor Jared Kushner pay any taxes, so <laughs> why should you? It's a good excuse for all of us just to tell the IRS we're not going to do it this year because they don't. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? Happy Monday. It is uh, Monday, Monday, October 15, halfway through the month of October already. Can you believe it? And here we are coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., a rainy nation's capital today uh, with the uh, at least the House, I think maybe even the Senate, uh, not working this week. That's pretty sure because the Senate uh, senators made a deal uh, that they uh, were going to vote on a whole block of judges all at one time, which would enable the uh, all the senators to get out of town, particularly the Democratic senators interested to get out of town to campaign for re-election. But even if they're gone, we've got the place covered here. Uh, whether it's uh, any news coming coming out of the Capitol building or any news down at the White House, anywhere else actually around the rest of the country and around the globe, we're on top of it. Our job to tell you what's going on and your job to tell us what you think about it all as we join you online, of course, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. 
As we join you on the radio out in Indiana, statewide on Indiana Talks, Joe Biden there over the weekend for Joe Donnelly running for re-election, the two Joes, and um, also joining you, of course, in the greater Chicago area on the great WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago. And then we are there with you, for those of you on DirecTV, there with you on Free Speech TV as well. Hello, hello, hello again. Hope you had a great weekend and ready for the news of the day. There is a lot of it, and we've got um, a great lineup of guests today. Greg Miller is Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The Washington Post, out with a powerful new book all about uh, the uh, yet-condemned-by-Donald-Trump interference of Russia in the 2016 election. It is called The Apprentice, uh, that Russian uh, connection, which Donald Trump talked a little bit about last night on 60 Minutes. He still doesn't get the severity of it all, uh, in my opinion, and, and has done nothing about it. Uh, after that, after uh, Greg Miller's here, Medea Benjamin, we've seen her. She's been our guest several times, the co-founder of Code Pink, who has been organizing and leading the protests outside the Saudi Arabian embassy here in Washington, D.C., in light of the disappearance, and it looks more and more like the murder, of uh, Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi embassy uh, consulate in Istanbul. Medea will be here to join us. About, I'll talk all about that. And then Justin Sink, who covers the White House for Bloomberg, uh, one of the best White House reporters, been following the president around to some of his rallies last week. He'll bring us up to date on all the latest from the White House. Speaking of the White House, stunning news over the weekend from the New York Times uh, reported on Friday morning, Friday maybe or Saturday, over the weekend at any rate. Um, remember, we've talked before, of course, Donald Trump did not release his tax returns at all. The first president in modern times to refuse to do so. Uh, and it always raised the question of whether or not he had paid any taxes at all. There was one year uh, that was released um, by the New York Times. I got a copy of one year of his returns. I think it was 2005, as I recall, where he paid about maybe 5%, even though he was worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. Well, the New York Times reported that uh, it sort of runs in the family. Jared Kushner, over the last decade, his net worth amounted to uh, increased in value to $324 million. That's what he's worth, $324 million. And over that time, while his he kept getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, uh, he paid a total in federal taxes of $0. Yep. Pretty nice if you can get away with it. They say it's probably not illegal what he did. He just used a lot of tax schemes, uh, like the t Times just about 10 days ago proved that Donald Trump has done to avoid paying almost any taxes. Jared Kushner, another real estate developer, playing the same game, uh, citing massive losses on property in Manhattan, which became more and more valuable every year, but on their tax returns they were saying they were losing money on them, which offset his income, net result again paying zero in taxes. In other words, he took a great big lesson from his father-in-law why pay federal taxes? I'm rich, I'm powerful, I'm clever, I can afford um, 
very expensive and uh, very uh, uh, experts, expert lawyers in avoiding paying taxes. So why not do it if I'm capable of doing it? Yeah. Well, so now we have the freeloading family who are uh, setting an example to the American people. In fact, Donald Trump, remember, at one time said, yeah, I don't pay any taxes because I'm smart. Only dummies, in other words, pay taxes. So only dummies like you and me pay our taxes. If you're smart, that's the message that they're sending. If you're smart, you can just avoid them all. So here is Donald Trump. He lives in public housing. He doesn't pay anything for it. He flies <coughs> on our military jets. He doesn't pay anything for it. Uh, he praises the military all the time. What a great job the military is doing. And he doesn't give one time to support their work. A total, total freeloader. freeloader. Uh, you can get something for nothing if your name is Jared Kushner or your name is Donald Trump. Meanwhile, Donald Trump with this incredible uh, interview last night with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. And of course, one of the things he was asked about uh, was the current flap, more than that, uh, current just absolute scandal over the fact that we have photographs of White House columnist, Washington Post columnist, Jamal Khashoggi, who used to work for the royal family, and then because he became critical of Saudi, the Saudi government, some of their policies, he was so harassed in Saudi Arabia that he came to the West and came to the United States about a year ago, was living in Virginia. Um, he goes back to Europe. He's in Turkey. He wants to. He got, had gotten divorced. He wants to get remarried. He goes in the Saudi consulate to get the piece of paper he needs to prove that he was duly divorced so he can marry his Turkish fiance, who has an op-ed this morning, by the way, in the New York Times, um, and uh, talking about the disappearance of her fiance because he walks into the consulate. We have a picture of him walking into the consulate uh, in Istanbul on October the 2nd, almost two weeks ago, and he hasn't been seen since. And the Turkish government now says that they intercepted a recording. They say that apparently that that uh, Mr. Khashoggi turned on his iPhone as he walked into the embassy, the recording device on his phone, and actually recorded his torture and murder at the hands of Saudi agents inside the consulate. Turkish government says they've got the tape. And they do know that 15 agents of the Saudi government flew into Istanbul that morning on private planes and flew out that night, the Turks say, having accomplished their mission of murdering and dismembering the body of Mr. Khashoggi and maybe took the body parts with him. Who the hell knows? It, it's such a horrifying story all around. And there is a little bit of breaking news because uh, this morning Saudi Arabia says that they will allow Turkish investigators to search the consulate in Istanbul where he disappeared, which, again, as you pointed out, it's been two weeks. Yeah, you don't think that they've... I would imagine they've done a pretty good cleanup job. Look, if they can pull off a murder like that yeah. in another country, they can destroy any evidence. Yeah, they can clean it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think... I think we have to uh, to worry about their ability to do that. Uh, meanwhile, the, but the scandal is that Donald Trump still 
has not made any strong condemnation of the Saudis. He is just the, the strongest he has said is, well, we'll let it sort itself out. We'll sort of, we'll figure it out. We'll see how it sorts itself out. He did tell Leslie Stahl last night that, of course, and of course, this is, this is what he said about Roy Moore. Well, why would I condemn him? Because he denies it. She asked him, uh, what about this? And he said, well, the Saudis deny it. And we would be very upset and angry if that were the case. As of this moment, they deny it and they deny it vehemently. Could it be them? Yes. Yes. Could it be them? Yes. It's hardly a strong response. Hardly a strong response. And then here's what's really shocking. is So the question is, why hasn't the president uh, done or said more about this? Because, because he made a pact with the devil. He made a—this is, this, this is absolutely— um, the, the 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 fact that he he got down with the Saudis. Peter Baker, let me just read you the very the very top of the article, the lead article in the New York Times this morning by the great Peter Baker. When President Trump made Saudi Arabia his first foreign destination after taking office last year, remember that's the first place he went was to Riyadh. He struck what amounted to a fundamental bargain with the royal family. He would not lecture them about human rights, and they would buy plenty of American weapons and military hardware. And Donald Trump last night with Leslie Stahl, remember that. So he made a deal. You, will, you, you sell us, or we'll, you, you buy from us $10 billion in arms, and we'll look the other way, no matter what you've done. And, and remember, this guy, the... the acting head of Saudi Arabia, the son of the king or the nephew of the, the king. He's 33 years old and he's basically running the country because the king is too old. Um, he's done a lot of stuff. Like he locked up all the leaders of Saudi Arabia who opposed him, his taking this job, uh, and held them and took their money for months. Donald Trump said it proved he was a strong leader. Um, at any rate, uh, this Mohammed bin bin Salman, who bought allegedly agreed to buy these weapons, and Donald Trump admitted last night to Leslie Stahl that this is why he hasn't been more critical. They are ordering military equipment. Everybody in the world wanted that order. Russia wanted it. China wanted it. We wanted it. We got it. We got it. That's an amazing admission, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just like right there in front of us. So we made a deal with them. Now, how can I? Because if I'm critical of them, they may cancel that deal, and we may not be able to sell them the weapons. In it's, other words, it's he will not take a moral stand against murder, even though it happens to be a murder of a journalist, because he made a money deal with the Saudis. It's the bottom line for Donald Trump. That's it. Always. That's always. It. Always. And, you know, it's so interesting how people test Trump. They test him all the time, right? Republicans yeah. have tested him just to see, like, what it is that he really wants. And it looks like the Saudis are testing him. We're going to murder this journalist in essentially broad daylight, and we're going to see what it is that you're going to do about it. Are you going to do anything about it? And so far, the answer is no. Right. So, by the way, Donald Trump, also in this interview— uh, with Leslie Stahl, go back and watch this, it's incredible. He also said 
that, um, yeah, they may have done it, but it happened in Turkey, not in the United States, and Khashoggi was not an American citizen. As if that matters. So, therefore, we don't have to get too upset about it, right? Now, he did say, this is the strongest he said, if it proves that they did this, then they're going to have to pay a price, right? A little, what do you call it? Severe severe punishment. There will be severe punishment. Uh, and that, again, as strong as Donald Trump was willing to go. But uh, in the meantime, no investigation. And by the way, there's something we knew about this ahead of time. We knew that the Saudis, our intelligence agencies had confirmed, we didn't know they were going to murder him inside the consulate, but we knew they were trying to lure him back to Saudi Arabia and take care of him there. Did we alert Khashoggi? Did we say, you better not go anywhere near these guys? No. No. I mean, so I'm not saying we ought to be blamed for this, but certainly, again, we have followed through with what Don, the, the leadership uh, that, that Donald—I hate to use that word, leadership— the direction Donald Trump has taken, which is any misdeeds of the Saudis, we look the other way because they're buying more weapons than anybody else on the planet. That's yeah. what it— yeah. yeah, I mean, think That's about That's what it was all about. You're right. I'm not sure that we deserve the blame necessarily, but we either turned our backs on this journalist or we weren't doing our job and following through on, you know, the stuff that we had heard about what they wanted to do to him. One way or the other, yeah. we did screw up. Yes. You would think that at the least we would have called to say, hey, yeah. what's this we're picking up here, right? right. Don't go there. This is not... This is not this is not acceptable behavior. Uh, on, uh, related to that, by the way, Donald Trump was also asked by Leslie Stahl. We're going to play some more clips here in just a second, but um, he was also asked about Don, Don, uh, by Leslie Stahl whether or not he felt that Vladimir Putin, speaking of murdering people, whether Vladimir Putin was involved in those poisonings that took place of former Russian agents on UK soil. And the president said, yeah, he probably was. Putin was probably involved, but it didn't take place on U.S. soil. Just like Khashoggi was not a U.S. citizen, so therefore, it's okay. America first. We don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Uh, other little uh, goodies, nuggets from that uh, interview with uh, Leslie Stahl. Well, he was asked about his cabinet, uh, particularly about... Um, how about Defense Secretary Mattis? Do you think there have been some rumors that he might uh, be moving on? Uh, as as we saw the list last week of 29 top people around the president who have moved on in the first less than two years. Uh, and Donald Trump, here's the best thing he can say about Defense Secretary James Mattis, who really is sort of the star of the cabinet. It could be that he is. I think he's sort of a Democrat, if you want to know the truth. But General Mattis is a good guy. We get along very well. He may leave. I mean, at some point, everybody leaves. Everybody. People leave. That's Washington. Boy, what a great compliment from your boss, huh? <laughs> God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good guy. But, you know, yeah, he's kind of a Democrat anyhow, right? So the thing is, and we've, we've mentioned, mentioned this before, originally, right, they said, look, we don't have to worry about Donald Trump because you got some grown-ups around him. There's H.R. McMaster, 
there was Rex Tillerson, there was Gary Cohn, and there's James Mattis. Oh, boy. Mattis is the only one left. Yeah. And Donald Trump doesn't like the fact that people do consider him the adult in the room. And Mattis has stood up to Donald Trump. He publicly said he thought getting out of the Iran nuclear deal was a mistake. He has uh, told the president, invading Venezuela? Are you freaking kidding me? No, we're not going to do that. Uh, He also, um, on the transgender movement, when the president put out a tweet saying we're we're not going to accept anymore, we're going to throw all the transgender uh, soldiers out of the military, uh, James Mattis said, you know, I don't take orders from tweets. You know, tweets, a tweets, a tweet, a tweet, you know that. And so there's been a little friction there. Thank God there's one grown up in the room who will tell Donald Trump, no, I think the only one left is James Mattis. It's sad to think of it this way, right? But I'm sure that establishment Republicans had a hand in getting James Mattis on the cabinet, right? I'm sure that there were some people that went to Trump and they were like, this is the guy. I know you don't know much about national security and the military. This is a guy that should absolutely be secretary of defense, right? And so now that Donald Trump has grown into this role as president, he doesn't want any of these establishment Mm -mm. Republicans to have any sort of influence over his cabinet whatsoever. So he's going to get, you know, Ted Nugent as Secretary of Defense or something crazy. Well, that's yeah. what he wants. And and he has brought in hardliners like Mike Pompeo at State and John Bolton, National Security Advisor, still hard to believe that that idiot has that post, who are m- totally opposite their approach to foreign policy uh, and to international relations, the total opposite of a guy like James Mattis. And so... In effect, Trump has sidelined Mattis by bringing in people like Bolton and Pompeo. And you're right; if he gets if if he pushes Mattis out, he'll put some he'll put Kanye West <laughs> right, total Yahoo. Yeah, yeah, and somebody again who won't will never stand up to him. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. He just wants to be able to do whatever it is that he wants to do. It's the Venezuela thing, right? Like you mentioned, Mattis was able to shut that down. Whether or not Donald Trump was actually going to follow through on it, who knows? But he was serious enough about it to bring it up, and Mattis had to shut him down. Yeah. Whoever the next Secretary of Defense is will not shut his crazy ideas down. Uh, There's so much in that interview last night. Donald Trump also talked about the uh, Kavanaugh nomination, of course, and – Still lamenting the fact about how horribly, how horribly Brett Cap, poor Brett Kavanaugh was treated. Now, just as Kavanaugh was treated, has become a big factor uh-huh. in the midterms. In, in your have mind. you seen what's gone on with the polls? But did you have to? Well, I think she was treated with great respect. I, I know, I'll but, be honest. But, oh, yeah. but do you think there you are those treated that think her she with, shouldn't have been? Do you think you treated her with great respect? I think so. Yeah, I did. But you seem to be saying that she lied. Uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to get into it because we won. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we won. That's all that matters. We won. It doesn't matter how we won. In fact, Donald Trump told Leslie Stahl that when he went down to um, I was it Louisiana or Mississippi, wherever it was that he mocked. Uh, Christine Blasey Ford uh, and made fun of her and really pissed off even a lot of Republicans in the Senate. Donald Trump said last night that if he had not done that, they would not have won that confirmation battle. That he is the one 
who okayed by by his mocking her, his making fun of her, he made it okay for everybody else to mock her and make fun of her and not believe her and rally behind Brett Kavanaugh and force him onto the Supreme Court. Uh, And you know what? I hate to say it, but he may be right in that because the cowardly Senate Republicans, even though some of them said this is terrible for the president to do that, they just they just lined up right behind him and voted for Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. By the way, I don't think that Trump was wrong when he said that. No, the reason no that's, that what, I, won. I, that's yeah. what I said. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, yeah. It, it gave these cowardly Republicans, an, a, you know, an, a, an excuse, yeah. an opportunity yeah. to get to line up, to line up behind him. Um, and uh, how about any regrets that you may have had, uh, Mr. President? I regret that the press treats me so badly. I'm, I'm really oh, asking. Oh. And despite that, my poll numbers are very good. Have so. you made any mistakes? That's my question. Everybody makes mistakes. That's the best. What's your biggest regret? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You guys the didn't media, cover me fairly. The media treated me fairly. And then, of course, uh, he has to, because she is a reporter, she is a journalist, he has to take a slam at Leslie Stahl. You treated me much differently on the subject. I disagree, but I don't want to have that fight with you. Hey, All it's right, okay. Have another fight with Leslie, you. Leslie, okay. it's okay. In the meantime, right. I'm president We're and you're not. What a, <laughs> what a silly thing to say. But remember he said that I was at the, in the Rose Garden one day when, when he made that statement in, in front of the press corps. Right. Hey, look. I'm president and you're not. Nah, 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 nah. Right. What a dumb <laughs> ass thing to say to a reporter. I know. It's just crazy. Well, there is a little bit of other news. The Washington Post reports this morning in their latest poll. Um, we've talked before about the uh, excitement and momentum going into the midterm elections. According to the Post this morning, 81% of Democrats say they are absolutely certain to vote in the midterm elections. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, turnout, turnout, turnout. Uh, we had the people, guy uh, in last night from the, the organization, last week, the organization, When We All Vote. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and that's the, the turnout will be the key. Turnout, whether Democrats take back the House or Democrats take back the Senate or all these governorships is going to depend on Democrats who are really, uh, first of all, outraged at Donald Trump and angry over uh, Brett Kavanaugh and the treatment of Christine Blasey Ford, um, and leaders, uh, the members of the Me Too movement, if you will. If they're pissed off, it doesn't matter unless they turn out to vote, get out to vote. So when 81% say they're absolutely certain, that's crazy. Uh, that's a good start. But you know what? Why isn't it 91% yeah, or, no. 90, or 90, 95%? Uh, that, and, that's an amazing number. Isn't it? That's oh, an amazing 80, number. 81%. Uh, how about this? Elizabeth Warren. You know, Donald Trump calls her, makes fun of her as Pocahontas, uh, saying that she lied when she said she had some uh, Native American blood in her uh, when she applied for a job at Harvard, I think it was. At any rate, Elizabeth Warren revealing today that she has had a DNA test, and the DNA test shows that her Native American roots go back six at least six generations. Yeah, six at least to six, ten. six to ten. Yeah, six to ten generations. Yeah, uh, she said that uh, she had that that uh, whatever research done, and she's going to reveal it today in a news conference. But it's sort of leaked out ahead of time. Well, so I'm, I'm sure that Donald Trump will 
uh, you uh, issue his apology immediately. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> don't hold your breath on that one. Lots going on, and we are just getting started on a Monday, Monday, October 15. Uh, so, again, how real was the Russian meddling in the 2016 election? Were they the only ones who did so? And when is Donald Trump finally going to uh, acknowledge that it happened and condemn it and do something about the fact that it's not going to happen again? Uh, the book is The Apprentice. Greg Miller from The Washington Post joins us next here in studio on The Bill Press Show. Quick break. We'll be right back. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. So here we go on a Monday, Monday, October 15. Hello, hello, hello. Great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining in online, on the radio, and on television all across this great land of ours. It is the Bill Press Show. We're uh, coming to you live, as always, from our studio in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters, those great men and women of our firefighting departments all across the land. we got a great station just about a block away here uh, on Capitol Hill uh, under the leadership of uh, President Harold Schaatberger on the front lines protecting American families every day. They never let us down. We appreciate their good work and their support of the program. You can find out more about their good work at IAFF.org. Uh, and we welcome uh, to the program. Uh, he's got a great new book out called, very powerful book, The Apprentice, uh, all about uh, the Russian meddling in the 2016 election, Trump, Russia, and the subversion of American democracy. Uh, Greg Miller, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from the Washington Post. Hello, Greg. Good to see you. Hi. Thank you. Congratulations. Thanks very much. Um, no doubt about, is there, that the Russians did meddle in the 2016 election? No. I, I think there's zero doubt. No reasonable person has any doubt about it. I mean, I think President Trump is sort of the last man standing and trying to, even even in his 60 Minutes interview, trying to sort of muddy it up, even when he acknowledges it now, he tries to point in other directions. But no, the evidence is overwhelming. I think that the Robert Mueller, the, it's only, the case has only grown stronger. The indictments that he has shown us already are just, I know CIA people who are staggered by the amount of detail that Mueller was able to put in the indictments about the Kremlin, the GRU, their involvement, their effort. Uh, uh, so you mentioned the 60 Minutes interview. Last night, um, The Leslie Stahl did ask the president about that, whether he's ready to acknowledge it. And again, as you say, he sort of tries to make light of the whole thing. Here he is. Do you really think I'd call Russia to help me with an election? Give me a break. They wouldn't be able to help me at all. Call Russia. It's so ridiculous. I mean, that's not really the point, is it? It's not the point. It's undercut by the facts. I mean, they they maybe didn't make the call to Russia when they had the meeting at Trump Tower, but they certainly took the call from Russia um, and, um, and, and met with Russians who they they hoped we're going to deliver some damaging information about Hillary Clinton. Um, and, you know, the the Russian help for Trump was was overwhelming. The math becomes overwhelming. Their Facebook has acknowledged that more than 100 million Americans were exposed to Russian propaganda that was denigrating Hillary Clinton and trying to boost Donald Trump. It's in a huge, huge number. Right. And nobody in the beginning or nobody's really ever, ever said, 
that Trump felt he was in trouble, so he said, I need some help. We're going to get some help. Okay, I'll call Russia and they'll help. I mean, this was probably an initiative on Russia's part oh, right? ab- absolutely. to see which way the election was going and to make sure it went in one direction rather than the other. Absolutely. And I don't, I'm not sure everybody understands that, that this was an, an, an sort of a, you know, a, an audible by the Russians during the election. And they their campaign of interference started out to mess up the race, the 2016 race, and to bring down Hillary Clinton, sort of damage her, uh, denigrate her. They expected her to win. They wanted her to arrive in office sort of damaged by the process. Only when Trump emerges as the Republican nominee does Russia sort of pivot its resources and really start pushing his candidacy. I mean, he was a long shot for, for anybody's estimation, Absolutely. including Russia's from the beginning. They did not start out to help to elect Donald Trump, but it is where they ended up. And when we talk Russia, we're talking the Kremlin, right? I mean, we're not talking Russians, no, ci- uh, Russian absolute, citizens. Absolutely right? not. So, I mean, I, I write about that in detail in this book. I mean, there are scenes in inside Russia House and at the CIA in the middle of the race, in the middle of the summer of 2016. Russia House? Russia House is the entity inside the CIA that is responsible for gathering intelligence in Russia. It's um, it's an apartment in the main headquarters building on one of the upper floors, and it's one of the most secretive spots in in U.S. government. And they were they were picking up amazing intelligence in the summer of 2016 that showed that Vladimir Putin himself had authorized this election interference campaign. It's called active measures in the in the Russian mm-hmm. system, and and it went straight to the top of the Kremlin. Did uh, was anybody else? The the other thing the president said last night was, yeah, Russia may have messed in, but they weren't the only ones. Right. China probably. What, right? China. He didn't mention the four hundred pound guy in a basement. It's always <laughs> not last night. But not he last has. night. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, so it's always in his to, pajamas. It's always to deflect. It's always to deflect attention from what Russia did. Never can come cleanly at that subject. Well, I think one thing that certainly Donald Trump has never acknowledged, but the very subtitle of your book indicates, that we're th- this gets to something very, very serious, right? I mean, it's not just kind of monkey business on the internet. This is fundamental a fundamental challenge to American democracy. It's a huge How so? thing. It's huge because I think this is why this this subject really matters, and we sort of are too quick to dismiss it sometimes as just you know conspiracy theories spun by the right or the left. This, you know, the, an American presidential election is one of the core kind of aspects of our democracy. What could be more precious than to have a secure way of selecting our own leader and to have a foreign government play a major hand in that, to exploit our own social media platforms, to exploit our own divisions in our own society and make them worse for the purposes of tipping the outcome, it's a huge, huge deal. Uh, And um, I just think that to dismiss it, uh, as Trump often does, and to fail to take measures to counter it in the future um, is is just borderline unforgivable. So um, I've been a candidate, and I have run campaigns um, and been campaign consultants. It's difficult if you're an American involved in an American campaign to figure out where you're going to spend your resources, how you're going to influence 
the votes, the votes that you need to win, what that audience is, what the message is. We do all kinds of polling and everything. Yeah. So it's hard enough for an American to figure that out, whether it's a city council race or a U.S. Senate race or a presidential race. How the hell were the Russians able to figure it out? Who to, whom to target, what the message was, where to spend the resources? I think that... Uh, Did they have any help? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge question, and there have been there have been lots of there's been a lot of reporting that tried to get at that. How much help, sort of, how much steering did Russia get? Were they getting help from people, maybe not even inside the Trump campaign, but inside the party? Um, and nothing, you know, has jumped out in a very conclusive way. We do know, and I write about in the book, that the Russian effort was was sophisticated in ways. I don't want to overstate their understanding and expertise in this area. But the Kremlin sent, you know, they have this the internet research agency, this troll farm that's based in St. Petersburg, sent people to the United States to travel around the country to try to take the pulse politically. Uh, they had people watching shows like House of Cards on Netflix to get <laughs> really familiar with sort of the American vernacular. And so when they went online and created Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts, they could pass themselves off plausibly as Americans. But part of it is not really that sophisticated. They're just surveying American politics, American life, and drilling down in the areas where they see obvious division, right? The Black Lives Matter movement the immigration issue, um, it's it's advancing um, sort of xenophobic impulses in the United States, gun rights versus gun control. Anywhere where they see divisions, they sort of pile on, create accounts, try to make the situation worse. They never, so uh, uh, their, their MO, they never actually came, or did they, come out with ads saying, vote for Donald Trump. Well, not not well, not ads that you would sort of you know consider ads in the conventional political sense. But I mean, I walked right up to that line. I mean, they were they were pro, they were pumping our you know social media networks like Facebook with content that was talking about Hillary Clinton's you know supposed dire health situation uh, that cast Donald Trump as somebody who cared about veterans while they were you know, left in the streets by the Obama administration. I mean, so, there were some fairly direct so and pointed messaging. the message was pretty clear. Yeah. If you di- agreed with that message, what you ought to do. What you ought to Absolutely. Do. And they targeted, they haven't even engaged in voter suppression efforts, uh, trying to convince African-American voters in the United States not to come because their only meaningful way to express themselves might be to sit this one out, that both candidates were so poor Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, better to sit this one out. That's the best way to indicate your dissatisfaction. So tell me again, when did we, uh, the book again is The Apprentice, easy enough. The Apprentice, available uh, wherever you uh, get your books at your local independent bookstore, hopefully, or certainly, or online, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, The Apprentice, Greg Miller, the full inside story of this uh, the Russian meddling in the 2016 election. When did we find out about it? Well, we found out about it at different points. It depends on who. So initially, the CIA, US intelligence agencies, are starting to get wind about this over the summer. Summer Obviously, of? 2016. Okay. Well, let's back up. So we know that the DNC knew that it had been hacked a year earlier. Um, 
but it takes um, it takes a while for them to come to grips with the fact that it's Russia. Even when it's clear that Russia has hacked into the DNC, no, everybody's sort of looking at that as conventional espionage. They don't know what Russia that Russia has plans for all this material until it's all dumped on WikiLeaks in June of 2016, right on the eve of the Democratic convention. So that's really, you know, the first big revelatory moment: the WikiLeaks dump. This is Russia following a very different playbook in this campaign. Okay, so President Barack Obama is in the White House. Part of his daily briefing must have been a briefing by the CIA that the Russians are up to no good in the 2016 primary and then in the general election. Uh, Why didn't Obama do anything about it? Why didn't he say anything about it? And did he make a big mistake? So it's not even just something that surfaces in his PDB, his president's daily brief. It's urgent enough that John Brennan, the CIA director at the time, calls Dennis McDonough after Brennan has spent two days sequestered in his office at CIA headquarters going over all the agency's Russia intel. He calls Dennis McDonough and says, I need to get in to see the president. This is really worrisome. He has a one-on-one briefing with Obama, then proceeds to brief all the senior leadership in Congress about it. That's a pretty unusual step for yeah, the CIA director. Right. So they know, right? People are, they, they're, they're being called, this is being called to their attention. The Obama administration's handling of this is one of, you know, one of the areas that this book really dives into. And you can really do, there's a really a lot of second guessing even amongst former Obama administration officials. The bottom line is they felt, Obama felt really reluctant to put his thumb on the scale, to be seen as exploiting intelligence uh, in a way to sort of, that would be perceived as supporting Hillary Clinton. He worried that if he came out and said, Russia's interfering, Russia's trying to help elect Donald Trump, that that would be seen as trying to help his, his um, favored candidate in the race. And everybody... And would have given Donald Trump an issue to say, you see, this election is rigged, right? Exactly. Right. He's already saying that. Yeah. When, when the yeah. White House is making those deliberations, Trump is already out there saying, this thing is rigged, folks. You just wait and see. And they're panicked. They're really wary about playing into that narrative. And there's a fatal, a fatal error um, that almost everybody makes uh, throughout this period. Everybody thinks Hillary's victory is almost inevitable, including Obama. And they're more worried about contaminating that inevitable victory than they are about informing the public. It's just looking back, right? Uh, and hindsight, of course, is always twenty twenty. But it's hard to believe that with a such a serious and real threat to the American democratic system uh, that the president of the United States would not speak out against about it. It's uh, a, I think it's a huge source of ongoing frustration and anger for, for the Clinton campaign. Uh, and, you know, some senior Obama administration officials have talked to me and others about how frustrated they are by this. Um, you know, in the book, I quote officials saying they think that they sort of choked on this. Uh, there's Has also, Obama spoke, uh, acknowledged that maybe he should have done more? I, I, I no, don't remember that he No, has. I don't think he's ever said, He has a book coming out next year, maybe, so maybe... <laughs> maybe he'll explore this. And I think that, you know, it's really important, Bill, also to, to really call, call out Republican leadership on this, too, because they, they, they were an obstacle. They were briefed about it, too. Obama was seeking a bipartisan way to do this. He wasn't just sitting on his hands. He was trying to get... Mitch McConnell oh, and yeah. Paul wow. Ryan to go on with a bi- to go to agree to issue a bipartisan statement to the American public in the middle of the race. 
people. Russia is meddling in our election in a way we have never seen the likes of before. And McConnell refuses to do it. In fact, there's a scene in the book I write about where he's in this tense conversation with John Brennan, where McConnell actually tells him, look, I'm not willing to accuse Vladimir Putin of interfering in our, in our election, but I'm willing to accuse you. I'm willing to accuse the Obama administration of doing that if you guys try to come out with stuff like this. I will consider that a political move, and I will, and I will say so. Wow. Yeah, that is stunning. Yeah. Right. Talk about priorities. It didn't always be. It didn't. It wasn't always this way, right? I, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a you know it's one of the more astonishing moments I think that people will revisit as they review the history of this for for years to come, um, and it, as a sort of staggering moment and example, the extent to which sort of partisan impulses in our in our politics right now have trumped all other considerations, even in the moment of a sort of national security crisis. So. Uh, as I recall, it was January 2017. Was it, or, or, when did the I should I should really ask you when did the U.S. intelligence agencies come out with their universal report that that, that was in early January, well after the election, just a okay, couple weeks before. Okay, that's what before, I thought. Just a couple weeks before Trump is sworn in. January 2017, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Okay. Um, the the and they said at the time they could not evaluate whether or not the meddling had actually influenced the outcome of the election, correct? That's right. They, they emphasized that, that is not a question that they even looked at because right. they, are, they are intelligence services focused on foreign problems. They are not supposed to be making political, you know, engaged in political analysis in the United States. And I think it was important for them, for them given their role, to yeah. say that at the time. Yeah. Do we have any independent information or evidence since then that in fact the Russians did influence that they helped actually help Donald Trump get elected. I think there's two things I would say. One, it's almost impossible ever to definitively prove that because how do you get inside voters' minds and connect you know, sort of Russian propaganda to those to enough of those voters' decisions to say absolutely it did. On the other hand and we've seen more and more studies and research done on this, the math becomes overwhelming. It becomes increasingly hard to argue otherwise. What I was telling you a couple minutes ago, more than 100 million Americans yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, that's what I wanted to come back to. And then you, and you, re, and you re, return to the idea that this was an election decided by fewer than 80,000 votes. 100 million Americans are seeing propaganda denigrating Clinton and boosting Trump. Fewer than 80,000 decide this race. Uh, it's not. It may not have been the most decisive factor, right? The Comey handling of the Clinton email investigation, Clinton's own failings as a candidate are certainly huge issues, but it's hard to imagine it wasn't super helpful. Right. Yeah. The the, the math is overwhelming. If a hundred million people saw these ads, mm-hmm. that, and that's just Facebook, right? Yeah. They were using other platforms. That's not even counting the WikiLeaks camp, you know, the, the dumping of all of this DNC stuff on WikiLeaks, which just, again, draw, drew attention to Hillary and the email issues. Uh, and, right, it's not, there. this is just, just looking at Facebook, not Twitter, not all of this other stuff. Not the protests, right? I mean, there were actual protests that Russian messaging fomented in the United States. Even if you had 5%, yeah, right? Yeah. You'd have as many people as influence the outcome of the election, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it's just, it's hard to say that it, that it did not. Whatever happened to the 
people that Mueller has indicted. I think it was uh, it was 13 at first and then another 25. I forget the exact They grew up to 32 now who 32. have either been indicted yeah. or have pleaded guilty. And these are Russian individuals. Some of oh, you're talking the, about, oh, you're talking yeah. about just the, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, of the Russian military, right? There, nothing's going to happen to them, right? Nothing I mean, will happen to them. Uh, the... Um, in fact, we've learned more, you know, a separate indictment shows that some of these same, same exact individuals, we now know their names. It's astonishing. We yeah, know the names yeah. of Russian intelligence operatives who were responsible for this hacking. Some of them were also the same ones who were, were returned uh, by the Kremlin against anti-doping agencies for their work against uh, Russian athletes. Um, <sighs> it's, uh, you know, in a bigger picture, Bill, we're in, we're in the midst of a uh, a new sort of era in espionage, a new era of aggression in Russian espionage. We're talked, we've seen the the poisonings in Salisbury, England, mm -hmm. the Russian interference in 2016, their attacks on these anti-doping agencies, uh, and you know, it's 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 a huge national security challenge, uh, and one that I think that the United States is sort of failed to fully come to terms with, in part because the president sort of refuses to acknowledge the reality of it. And from your reporting and your sources, is this still one of the main focuses of the Mueller investigation, whether or not this took place with any collusion? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a core, that's a core area for the Mueller investigation. The president keeps saying there was no collusion. There was no collusion. There was no collusion. Nobody's proven any collusion. Yeah, is true so far, I guess, huh? I think that, you know, it depends on how you look at things. Um, I think that there are some who argue that, you know, even that Trump Tower meeting is meets the legal definition of collusion. It's an Ameri it's a presidential campaign meeting. It was certainly with, the willingness to collude, right? Well, the it fact that they were disappointed with the material they got doesn't yeah. doesn't mean that the collusion that precedes it or, or doesn't exist or doesn't meet a legal threshold. And I write in the book, I have to say that a lot of this just sort of is hard to, it's, we're blinded to much of it because it happened out in the open. Um, when Trump in the middle of the campaign says, Russia, if you're listening, oh yeah, I hope yeah. you can get it, find those missing mm -hmm. Hillary emails. You know, at the time that was just sort of an isolated one-off thing, but now we know from Robert Mueller that Russia in fact was listening and uh, that very evening mobilized its spy services to launch spear phishing email hacks against Clinton computer systems within hours. Um, if that had happened, sort of a mental exercise, if, if we had learned after the fact that a presidential candidate had secretly asked the Kremlin to do this yeah. and then yeah. learned that the Kremlin had in fact followed up on it, that, wow. Oh yeah, I mean, that would be... But because it happens out in the open, uh, we Amazing. don't know how to process it. Right. Um, I hate, almost hate to ask you, but um, what is there any evidence that if they were so successful in 2016, one would have to conclude that they're at it in 2018? Yeah, the, the early indications are sort of mixed on this. Like I've seen some stories saying the Russians are sort of sitting this one out. And others, and others that they're kind of already, pro there's already been abundant evidence, that I think, that they've probed voter data, voter databases again and stuff like this. Uh, the social media interference stuff has not abated. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, Russia has only gotten more sophisticated about hiding its tracks. So the divisive messaging, um, in fact, we saw a pretty recent example of this viral thing on social media 
that was related to the Me Too movement came straight out of Russia, straight out of the yeah. Russia playbook. Um, but so, the fact is, you know, they also benefited from having just this singular candidate in 2016. Yes, right, so the impact, right. the impact is not it's, because of Russia's, the genius of Russia's design of this campaign. It is because, in part, Trump has compounded that impact because of the way he's conducted himself as president. Right. A real must-read, a fascinating, sad story, <laughs> but uh, one that should wake all of us up. The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Uh, Greg Miller, again, uh, online, wherever books are sold. We'll have a link up on our website at BillPressShow.com. Greg Miller, thanks so much for your good work. Thanks for coming in. Very much All appreciated. Right. Congratulations. Thank you. How about a quick This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Well, what do you know? Donald Trump hasn't paid any taxes and neither has Jared Kushner. So why should you be paying taxes? <laughs> hey, hello, everybody. It's or me. It's a Monday, October 15. So good to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show, and we're coming to you live all across this great land of ours, on the radio, on online, and on television with all the news of the day. Uh, good to have you with us. Hope you had a, a great weekend. It's a rainy morning here in Washington, D.C., um, but, you know, we don't let that stop us. We'll just dive right in, bring you up to date on the news of the day, and you tell us what you think about it all. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, on at show. Uh, all the news of the day, a lot of it concerns uh, the still unexplained disappearance and looks like the worst murder and dismemberment of the body of a Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who was living here in the United States, went back to Europe, walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, as we know, on October 2nd, and has not been seen since. Uh, our intelligence agencies say we can expect the worst, but Donald Trump still has not condemned the Saudis or really made any strong statement about it. One person on top of this, and she's been leading the protest outside the Saudi embassy here in Washington, D.C., the co-founder of Code Pink, our good friend Medea Benjamin, joining us in studio. Medea, good to see you. Good morning, Bill. Good to be here. All decked out in pink this morning on a rainy day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, seriously, I want to tell us everything you know and what we're doing, what, what we're doing about what some of the implications of this are. Uh, and as always, and get your comments on Twitter at BP Show. We'll jump right in with Medea Benjamin, but first. 
Gotta give it to Peter for the big stories of the day. Yes, indeed. Let's go down to Texas where Megan and Steve Long run a brewery in Texas that they're very proud of. They have dog nights at their brewery where people can bring their dogs in and have a beer with their with their friends, right? With their dogs. And then they started asking themselves, what if we brewed a beer. I was waiting for this. No. For, for the dogs. dogs. Now, I want to be very, very clear. I want no to be alcohol. very, very clear. No alcohol in this whatsoever because it's not good for dogs. But they started looking at things that were good for dogs. For example, turmeric is good for their digestion. It's good for our digestion, too. Uh, but it's good for their digestion. Plus, ginger is good for their fur and their coat shininess. So they have concocted a beer called the Mailman Malt Liquor. Liquor spelled L-I-C-K-E-R, not L-I-Q-U-O-R. The beer, in parentheses, or in air quotes, I should say, uh, includes chicken, turmeric, ginger, oranges, carrots, basil, cilantro, and fennel. And they say these are all things that are good for a dog's overall health. They pointed out out (coughs) that humans can drink it. But why would you, really? It's essentially just like carbonated broth, right, Mm. is what you're working with at this point. So it's great for dogs. I can't imagine it tastes all that great for humans. But they said if you want to drink it, you certainly can. What's it cost? You know, they didn't mention how much it costs. It's certainly probably less than what a beer costs. Uh, But, you know, if you want to go have a beer with your dog, you can have a beer with your dog. Uh, I had a conversation with my sister, one of my sisters yesterday, about the amount of medication, of the amount of money that people pay for medication for their dogs. Now they're going to be paying for beer for their dogs, too? Yeah, no thanks. Yeah. No thanks. It's stunning the yeah. amount of, of, that, of money that Americans spend on their pets. Oh, yeah. And with Halloween coming up, people are going to get costumes for their pets, too. You, yeah, I know. Uh, let's say hello to Mike Roman. Mike Roman lives in Hackensack, Hi, New Jersey. He's a picky eater, Bill. He's a very, very picky eater. In fact, when he was four years old, he decided he was going to eat pizza every day. Which sounds like something that a four-year-old would say. Yeah. Here's the thing. He's now 41, and he has still eaten pizza every single and day. he weighs. I got to be honest. They've got a picture of him, and he's not overweight. He looks to be in pretty decent shape, actually. But he's a very picky eater. Kids, if you're listening, don't try it. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Uh, If you're a friend of Donald Trump's, you can commit murder and get away with it. Yep, the Saudis just did, it looks like. Hello, everybody. What do you say? On a Monday, October 15, good to see you today. Welcome to the program, the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio, right in the heart of the action on Capitol Hill, Uh, We're just about six blocks down the street from the United States Capitol building in the shadow of the Capitol Dome, we like to say, and about six metro stops away from the White House. We've got it covered, what's happening here as well as around the country and around the globe. Joining you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on the radio on the great WCPT out in uh, Chicago, in the greater Chicago area and on Free Speech TV nationwide as well. In studio with us, co-founder of Code Pink, 
and Global Exchange, Medea Benjamin, a longtime friend of ours and a frequent guest here in the studio. Medea, it's good to see you. Good to be with you, Bill. What, um, what, what's the latest? What do we know about um, Mr. Khashoggi, and what is your belief about what happened? I think it's pretty clear that he was lured into the consulate in Istanbul and then in one way or another killed. I don't know if it was that they tried to capture him to take him back to Saudi Arabia and it went bad. But uh, certainly there is absolutely no evidence he has left alive. And I think we should assume he was killed by the Saudis on the orders of the highest level, meaning at this point, given the King Salman uh, doesn't seem to be in charge on the orders of his 33-year-old son, Mohammed bin Salman. MBS, right, MBS. As, they, as they call him, friend of Jared Kushner's. Don- very, very close friend and an a interesting piece in the Post today about uh, how that close friendship is going to be affected by this. Right. Um, so the, the latest, Peter was telling us earlier, the Saudis have said, that they invited the Turkish government, they can they can come in and inspect the compound and inspect the consulate and find that there's no trace of him and he's not there. They say he left by the back door. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. With his fiancée waiting for him and where everybody else leaves through the front door, that's how you go in and you go out of consulate. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, sure. And they've waited now two weeks before letting them in. And so I guess they figured they've cleaned up any kind of trace. Uh, And one has to ask, what about this supposed audio and video recording that the Turks have possession of? And it seems they're being very careful the way they're leaking this out because they want to get something from the U.S. in the process as well. Right. But in any case, um, we're going to... Just just a point out there. They believe that uh, what they what we sort of leaked out that Mr. Khashoggi turned the recording device on his uh, iPhone on as he walked into the consulate unbeknownst to them sort of like Omarosa did with Donald Trump in the White House and the Turkish intelligence picked up uh the sound of the recording at least maybe I don't know about the video and well, that's so that that this is the the audio at least of his maybe interrogation, torture, and dismemberment. Yes, or the alternative version, which is uh, the Turks spy on their embassies uh, the way oh. a lot of people, a lot of countries do. Like we and, do. And they would rather say it came from his iPhone. Yeah, right. That, that's, that's, that's a very good point because it's well known um, that you know, we're spying on all the consulates here. They're spying on us. And so some one way or the other, it's not surprising if that recording exists, that somebody would have it, right? Yeah, but, you know, I no, think it's about time we just say they killed him. Yeah, yeah. What And um, how do you explain uh, the fact that so far the president has really made no strong statement about this at all? You look at the kind of weight that the Trump administration has given to Saudi Arabia from day one, and the first place in the world, there's so many allies to go visit, and he decided his first voyage overseas was going to be to Saudi Arabia, pretty much tells it all. And the way that Jared Kushner developed this very close bromance with the uh, crown prince, uh, and the way that they saw, quote, eye to eye on all kinds of things from 
investments in Saudi Arabia, investments in the United States, uh, weapon sales. Uh, we're going to work together and finally come up with some kind of peace process for Israel-Palestine, and the Saudis are going to be our key because they're going to force the Arab world to mm -hmm. and the Palestinians to go along with it. Uh, the intense uh, hatred of Iran that is shared by this administration and by the Saudis is another thing they have in common. And the, the ability or, or, or the willingness to see the Middle East in, through the eyes of the Saudis, which means that everything is Iran's fault, um, these, this is the, the way that this administration hitched its wagon to the Saudis. But let's be clear, Bill, it's not all that different from the way the Obama administration worked, from the way that uh, Democratic and Republican administrations have supported the Saudis through thick and thin with bumps along the way, like the Arab oil boycott in 73. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, it's been, we support the Saudis. We will make sure that this, what has been a ruthless, dic ruthless dictatorship from the time of its founding, that it stays in place. And here we are today. And we've always looked the other way when it comes to human rights abuses, treatment of women, right to vote, or whatever. Right. right, and it's funny to hear people like John Brennan, former director of the CIA and somebody who was uh, a, a CIA chief in Riyadh, act as if, oh, well, they were actually pretty good until Mohammed bin Salman came in. Yes, he has been uh, a bit more ruthless, but, you know, they have always... Uh, refuse to allow people the right to free association, free speech, freedom of religion. The Shia minority has always been discriminated against. Uh, it's a country that uh, has been one of the most misogynist in the world with the greatest mm -hmm. gender segregation, which is not something that Mohammed bin Salman, uh, he, quote, allowed the right to drive, but then threw the, the women who worked for that into prison. Uh, so it's been... Oh, and, and we haven't even mentioned the fact that not only were 15 of the 19 hijackers from Saudi Arabia, but that they've been spreading this perverted uh, Wahhabism uh, version of Islam around the world. And they have had very close ties with every Sunni extremist organization from ISIS to Al-Qaeda to Boko Haram. So last night on um, 60 Minutes, the president was asked by Leslie Stahl, why haven't you... Uh, been quicker and stronger in your condemnation of Saudi for certainly, even if we haven't proved murder yet, their role in the disappearance of this journalist. And the president was startlingly candid, candid about why it's all about the money and the arms. Here he is. They are ordering military equipment. Everybody in the world wanted that order. Russia wanted it. China wanted it. We wanted it. We got it. Disgusting. Yeah. I mean, he's flat out saying, wait a minute, what was it, $10 billion? They, they well, he says it's $10 uh, $10 billion, but that's not true because a lot of this is over a 10-year period and was negotiated previously with Obama. But in any case, it's... Whatever it was, yeah. right? So he's basically saying, we, we made a deal with them, right? We wouldn't say anything... And Peter Baker writes about this in the, in the New York Times this morning, that you're right. His first trip goes to Riyadh. His first deal is, we won't say anything about your human rights abuses if you buy our weapons. And they made a deal. And now he's saying, I can't criticize them because 
the deal could fall apart. Well, let's first remember that Obama made a deal and sold a lot uh, of weapons when they were doing the same kind of things. You're uh, absolutely right about Well, maybe not murdering journalists outside m- the country. Not outside the country. Not outside no, the exactly. country. Exactly. I'm yeah. glad you added that, Bill. But they were murdering a lot yeah. of people no, in Yemen. I'm, and oh, No, I mean, I'm not defending yeah. Obama with Israel. I was critical at the time about his relationship with the Saudis. I think, and I know you were, too. Right. Right. But, 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 but now but, there is a, an Donald added Donald Trump level is of, openly admitting that that's what drives them. Uh, right. And at least Obama, at the end of his administration, started feeling, oh, maybe we better put a halt on some of these weapons because of what they were doing in Yemen. And uh, Trump has none of those qualms. And as you say, he's openly admitting that morality doesn't mean anything. Human rights doesn't mean anything to us. The disappearance of a Washington Post journalist doesn't mean anything to us. It is absolutely outrageous. Right. Uh, I might add that in the 60 Minutes, not quite the focus of this conversation, but also in the 60 Minutes interview, Leslie Stahl asked the president about, okay, if the Saudis are involved in this, do you think Vladimir Putin is involved in the murder of uh, any murders? And he said, yeah, probably, but that happened on Eng- English soil, right? Happened in England, and um, and they weren't a- American citizens or something. So we, therefore, and he, and and about Mr. Khashoggi, he said that he wasn't a U.S. A US citizen, citizen. Yeah, and it happened in Turkey, not in the United States. So, yeah. like, why should I be concerned? And do we know yet how much information the U.S. had that he was being threatened? And didn't pass this information. And apparently, we had a good deal of information that he was being threatened. Maybe lured back to Saudi Arabia in some way. They were trying to lure him back into their hands so they could deal with him. Absolutely. And we never reached out to warn Mr. Khashoggi. Correct. No. And will the U.S. expel the Saudi ambassador to the United States? I mean, he right now he's still in Saudi Arabia on consultation. Um, we shouldn't allow him back into this country. We haven't done anything like that, correct? No, and look at what the Saudis did to Canada when Canada put out a little tweet saying, oh, these women activists you put in prison really shouldn't be there. Saudi went ballistic and recalled their ambassador, expelled an ambassador, stopped flights, uh, recalled all the students who were there. I mean, all kinds of things. And we're basically sitting and saying, "Eh, we'll wait and see. So what has Code Pink been doing about this, or what can you do about this? I know uh, because I'm on your mailing list that there have been several, and I've read about them too and seen video, the protest in front of the embassy here. Well, we've been involved in uh, constant protests in front of the Saudi embassy, uh, we also joined in in a, a rally in front of the Washington Post, uh, and we have been uh, focusing on this upcoming future investment initiative that's taking place in Riyadh, October 23rd to This 25th. is the so-called Davos in the desert, that's they call right, it. That's right, that's right. And yeah. helping to uh, push each one of these participants to withdraw. It's been pretty remarkable. The media, as, a, as far as I know, the only uh, media company left is Fox Business Channel. Yeah, it's true. That, that So this big conference, uh, they had one last year. This may be the second or this maybe— This is the second, yeah. Um, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has called because to get investors to show that Saudi Arabia is a place to spend your money, right? Because we're this upcoming— more modernization of of Saudi Arabia. Um, And it was very successful last year, but this year all the media, so far, you're right, all the media have withdrawn from this conference except 
surprise, surprise, the Fox Business Network. They're, they're still covering it. Uh, there's an article this morning in the New York Times that Jamie Dimon, the head of um, J.P. Morgan, has um, – he was going to be one of the keynoters. He has withdrawn. He's not going. Yeah, and the head of Uber, which is very interesting because Uber has tons of Saudi money in it. In fact, they're just in a fusion of $3.5 billion from the Saudis into Uber. Into Uber. And, yeah, Whoa. and Uber, the last I knew because we started a campaign mm-hmm. against them – had uh, put a Saudi on the board because they had so much Saudi money. So so the head of Uber is not going as well? The head of Uber is not going as well. And uh, now our campaign is to get more of them to withdraw, but also to look at the two dozen PR firms, most of whom are, are based in Washington, D.C., to get them to cancel their contracts. And there is one called the Harbor Group, uh, that was getting $80,000 a month from the Saudis. They have pulled out, but they're the only ones so far. So we are having a Twitter storm, and anybody wants to join us can... Uh, How do you do that? Well, we'll uh, join us at, at uh, sign up at, at uh, Code Pink website, but you can also just... CodePink.org, right? CodePink.org. Yeah. Or you can also go online and just uh, look for Justice for Jamal as the uh, handle on Twitter, and you will see the companies. Uh, that we have been focusing on, asking them to stop representing the Saudis. There must be dozens of companies in Washington who get Saudi money, right? There are, and they are full of former Congress people, people in the military. Oh, yeah, big, big lobby groups. And this is the time to get out them and say, can you really feel good about representing a murderous regime like the Saudis? And they're the one that they're the ones that painted this picture of MBS as the liberal mm-hmm. that was so successful when he made his three-week trip throughout the United States. And we were Code Pink, the only group in the country that kept following him everywhere he went to say, "This is no Prince Charming. Don't throw your lot in with this Saudi prince." Uh, And yet, you know, we couldn't uh, compete against all this money that the Saudis put into U.S. PR firms. But as you mentioned, uh, he has been totally embraced as the buddy, 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 new best friend forever of Jared Kushner. That's right. So, I mean, that relationship, Kushner is the one we know who convinced Trump to go to Saudi Arabia, who arranged the whole, they had the big flyover, the whole red carpet treatment they gave him that. About that big medal that Trump was wearing at the time, and and Kushner has basically convinced them, we can trust this guy, right? This Mohammed bin Salman. That looks like the whole th- that th- whole thing could go south to Kushner's mortal embarrassment, if not worse, right? I don't know. Oh, I mean, they they uh, Kushner acted like this was the guy who was modernizing Saudi Arabia disregarding all the things that were going on behind the glitter and the gold. Like the war in Yemen. Like the war in Yemen, like the uh, the crackdown on all kinds of dissidents. And also, Bill, you know, something that, that uh, I realized when I was doing, I did a book on Iran and a book on Saudi Arabia, and I've been traveling around the United States. Everywhere I would go, there would be somebody lurking in the back uh, and usually we'd come up to me afterwards and say, I'm a Saudi citizen. I didn't want to say anything during the presentation. Could we go outside and talk? And they would tell me how they are, uh, they've been 
banished from Saudi Arabia, or they fled Saudi Arabia, they were seeking asylum, and they were afraid to speak out because of what would happen to their family back home. And this has been a constant way that Saudi Arabia has quelched dissent, is to not only imprison people inside Saudi Arabia, uh, behead them, uh, uh, give them uh, these incredible sentences for blogs, but also the ones in the diaspora to threaten their families. As, and that's why as, you... As they did with uh, Jamal Khashoggi. That's his, right. right. That's right. He fled his... the country to find out that members of his family were imprisoned. Right. And, just and because so you they have were to, related to him. And you have to think of the, the, the sacrifice that somebody like him was doing, uh, knowing that his family was in jeopardy for that. So my point is to say that Jared Kushner disregarded all the, the fact that this was always a repressive regime and that MBS was particularly uh, not only repressive, but uh, he did not want any kind of dissent against him. And remember when they took about 200 people inside Saudi Arabia and threw them into the glitzy oh, yeah, the, uh, Ritz-Carlton as their prison? That was MBS's first act. That was MBS shaking down all of these uh, big business people and people inside the royal family, getting over $100 billion for them to use as he wanted um, with absolutely no deep due process. And it was portrayed by Jared Kushner and others as an anti-corruption kind of thing, which is absolutely ridiculous. But also imagine how many people inside the royal family hate the prince. And what are they trying to do right now to point the finger probably at him and to say, he has sullied the name of this great kingdom. And what are we going to do to rehabilitate ourselves? It must be something like a royal coup that is probably about to take place. But doesn't it look like at this time, uh, despite this massive outrage, that uh, with Donald Trump not doing more, um, particularly, but other countries not doing that much either, that the Saudis could get away with this? They could, and a lot of that depends on what is our Congress going to do? Are oh. You're counting on them? Well, I'm counting on us as the people to be pressuring them. And if we got very close, uh, 44 votes at one time, 47 votes at another time in the Senate around holding up weapons mm -hmm. to Yemen, don't you think now we better be able to get an extra uh, five or 10 votes? Right. I yeah. would hope so. And you see people like uh, Marco Rubio, like Lindsey Graham, a great supporter of the Saudis, is going to say there's hell to pay. So if Lindsey Graham doesn't say, okay, we better cut the weapon sales, uh, I don't know how he's going to look himself in the mirror. But uh, hopefully we're going to have enough uh, to, to, at least in the Senate, push for this. And they've 22 senators have called for the uh, Magnitsky Act to be invoked, yeah. meaning that the people who are responsible for this would be sanctioned. <coughs> and that means the crown prince. Mm -hmm. uh, Rubio was also uh, over the weekend said that he, he believes that Steve Mnuchin, back to this Davos in the desert, uh, should not go to that conference. I don't think he should go. I don't think any of our government officials should be going and pretending as it's business as usual until we know exactly what's happened here. Uh, a good, good point. Him. It should not good be business as, as Absolutely. usual. Absolutely. So I want to ask you about a couple of other things before we let you go. We, you and I first met um, on a great trip to Cuba. I think it's been 20 years, Medea. Wow. Since we went with uh, our family, yeah. Carol and Mark and David. Um, and I think 
Heather, David's girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. now wife, was there mm-hmm. also. Um, what uh, relations with Cuba? Trump is, they were getting so much better under Obama. Trump is determined to go the other direction. What's the current status? Is it, can Americans still go to Cuba? They can still go to Cuba. It's not difficult, but it is a little more difficult than it was when Obama lifted a lot of these restrictions. And so the perception is that it's hard to go, and it means a lot less Americans are going there. And that's been very difficult for the Cubans, especially individual Cubans that put a lot of their resources into um, uh, turning their homes into restaurants or Airbnb. A little opportunities to have some private enterprise in Cuba. So these kind of things are are, are hurting uh, the individual Cubans more than Cuban government, although I must say it, it hurts the Cuban government as well. And um, so it's been uh, it's been difficult for Cubans, and um, but now there are direct flights still. There right? are direct Which flights, and people can and should go. And uh, with my organization, Code Pink, we have trips that go to Cuba, and people absolutely love them. They find it mm-hmm. fascinating to go. Uh, so people considering getting out of the cold that is coming up now in uh, this area. Um, as winter approaches, should think about a nice vacation in Cuba. You'll right. learn a lot. Uh, again, the, the website is codepink.org. Um, you have a big conference coming up on Iran. Yes, we do. We are very worried about what's happening with Iran. The Trump administration pulled the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal. It looks deal. like Benjamin Netanyahu is determined to get the United States to to declare war against Iran. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, it is, I mean, talk about sanctions hurting people. This is really hurting the ordinary Iranians because when the U.S. pulled out, they snapped back these sanctions. And there's another round of sanctions coming up on November 4th, which is supposed to stop the Iranians from selling any oil. And so the, uh, the economy is a mess. People are really feeling it. And there's tremendous worry that the U.S. policy is to make the economy so bad that people rise up and they say, okay, we rise up, and then what happens? Will there be utter chaos? Will we look like uh, Syria or Libya? Uh, And um, we would rather make reforms in our government than see this kind of collapse with no plan B. And so we think it's important to look at where the U.S. policy is headed and what we can do. And that's what we're doing on December 1st here in Washington, D.C., a summit uh, for peace with Iran, and anybody listening who wants to come, please go on our website, codepink.org, and sign up for this day-long, fascinating summit that will have fabulous speakers, a lot of Iranian Americans, as well as our one of our favorite speakers, the former Secretary of of, uh, State for Colin Powell, Larry Wilkerson, a brilliant analyst, and um, we'll also have cultural, artistic, music, other kinds of things happening uh, during the summit. So come on and join us. All right. You got it. Uh, in the forefront on so many issues. And you'll be back in front of the Saudi embassy this week? Yes, we will. All right. At codepink.org if you're anywhere close by. Uh, Medea Benjamin, so good to see you. Thanks Thank you for, for coming me. in. Good to see you, Bill. Uh, again, codepink, um, codepink.org. And when we come back... Justin Sink covers the White House for Bloomberg. 
Uh, and, you know, uh, he's got his comments on uh, President Trump's interview last night with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. And all the rallies the president has been doing lately, is he helping or hurting these candidates out there on the road? We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with Justin Singh. Thanks again to Medea Benjamin. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. You bet. Here we go. Monday, October 15, a little rainy day in Washington, D.C. But rain or shine, we are there with you with the news of the day, reaching out to you nationwide from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where we're brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, uh, the one and only Leo Girard. The United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 active and retired members. Uh, we salute them for their good work and thank them for their efforts to bring back the steel industry here in um, and those manufacturing jobs here in the United States of America. Check out their website at usw.org. And we welcome to the program uh, from the White House beat for Bloomberg, uh, our good friend, Justin Sink. Hello, Justin. Hey, well, thanks for having Good me. to see you. Uh, the president on his way down to Georgia and Florida. To, to yeah, he'll be kind of reviewing the, the damage from the storm, the hurricane, uh, just over a week ago, I guess, or maybe right. a little less. And, um, you know, he's always been, I think, uh, really conscious of the sort of symbolic um, gesture that is the president going to, to view a disaster area and, and the potency of that. But he's also, of course, I think, uh, facing a lot of criticism that he's been out on the campaign trail. He didn't stop right. campaigning uh, he was as camp- the storm was hitting. Campaigning the night that Hurricane Michael hit the Florida panhandle and uh, and so. Yeah, and, and yeah. has spent the last week doing a lot of media interviews, campaign stuff, uh, and not spent an incredible amount of time, at least publicly, focused on the hurricane. So this will be I think right. uh, a crucial thing for him is as they start the recovery process. Reported this morning, by the way, that uh, it will be some people are, have been told in Florida that it will be months, months before they get their uh, electricity back. So, um, so still a lot of uh, we haven't been talking about it that much over the last weekend, but it's going to take a long time to recover from that. And there's some people still recovering from uh, Hurricane Florence. Uh, Peter, we've been uh, at it here for about an hour and a half so far this morning, Peter, with Comments? Yes, indeed. Remember, in. We're on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. Lots of different comments. You did the. You talked about the, uh, Jared Kushner. The story that shows that Jared Kushner did not pay mm. taxes uh, for several years, and he was making a ton of money. Uh, Holly says, "Never forget what Leona Helmsley said." That's a name I haven't heard in a long oh time. Oh my god! <laughs> Never forget what Leona Helmsley said. Only the little people pay taxes. <laughs> and Donald Trump said basically only the dumb people pay taxes, right? Yeah, pretty much. He I said, don't I'm... pay taxes because I'm smart. Yeah. I'm smart. Uh, also, uh, KG says we're getting closer to Trump actually shooting someone on Fifth Avenue and getting away with it, which is scary, but also possibly true. Well, the Saudis did. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like and we have a poll up right now. Should we put sanctions on Saudi Arabia? Yes, no, or uncertain. Uh, right now, overwhelmingly, people are voting yes, but we just put the poll up. So get there and vote right now at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, the poll is live, so you can vote on it right now. You got it. Uh, so, Justin, I want to ask you about that tax question because so the, the New York Times reports over the weekend that Jared Kushner, over the last decade, his uh, net wealth, net worth, right, 
uh, grew up to $324 million estimated that he's worth today, and yet he paid over that time zero taxes through legal, probably, it looks like legal, but uh, um, tax schemes. Uh, This is on top of about 10 days ago, the New York Times with that 40-some thousand dollars, 40,000 word article showing that Donald Trump had used all kinds of um, similar tax schemes, if you will, to avoid paying taxes and and accumulating his wealth. And he got all this money from his father, more than a million dollars. He got $413 million. That story just sort of disappeared. Yeah. So I I think that there- What happened? There's two ways to look at this, right? One is- and this is something that Democrats have certainly espoused. You know, the Democrats are going to take back the House. They're going to subpoena Trump's tax returns. It's going to reveal the extent, you know, more information about his wealth, how few, how little he's paid in taxes, uh, the sort of elaborate schemes that he's been in, the international interests that are, are bought into his corporate empire. And Democrats think that this is going to be prime fodder for uh, sort of turning the tide of public opinion against the president. And that's something that certainly would be true in past presidencies. I mean, Mitt Romney obviously was hurt by some of the yeah, discussions right. of, of, his, of his old holdings. But to your point about how these stories have just sort of disappeared, I think the real problem that Democrats are facing in these discussions over Donald Trump's finances is it's kind of baked into the cake to the extent that a voter cares about Donald Trump's finances. I think either they already know or already believe that Donald Trump doesn't really pay taxes, has a bunch of shady corporate dealings, has been, you know, is a sort of house of cards empire that's built on branding and uh, licensing his name out and international deals with banks and uh, corporate interests that, that are untraditional, to say the least. So either you already believe that or you just don't care. You say, yeah, this yeah. guy's a you know, self-made guy in America. <laughs> he did whatever he had to do to, to make his money, and, and that's what it is. And what I think you've seen time and time again with Donald Trump and the Republican Party is something that would have been you know, a complete scandal in any other presidency. They've sort of come to the realization that you know, we don't care. We, we see this with his um, personal life, certainly. I mean, if any other political candidate had essentially, uh, at the very least, confirmed that he paid off two porn stars because they alleged having, you know, an affair with him, it would be the end of their political career totally. overnight. Totally. And with Donald Trump, everybody sort of sees him as a playboy, and it's baked into the cake. And so I think, you know, there, this is great reporting by the New York Times. It's thorough and well documented and put together in a really. Um, in, in interesting way, but the you know Sarah Sanders' response to the original New York Times story was, "This is boring. It's forty thousand words, and people already kind of know this stuff." It's and boring, so, and they owe us an apology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, <laughs> how dare they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I just I'm not sure these these stories. While they are, I don't, I don't mean to discount their merits. I just I'm not sure they're going to ever have serious political consequences for the president. Yeah, that doesn't look that way. I mean, you're right. Uh, people say he's a philanderer, but, da, da, da. You know, yeah, he didn't even pay, pay any taxes, but, it's right. Yeah, it's the bargain that you've sort of made for Donald Trump is that he might not always act or say in a way that you think is appropriate, but if you are a Republican or a conservative um, who thinks that he's advocating your policy goals and that he's your best chance, 
well, you've gotten your two Supreme Court justices and you've gotten a huge tax cut. And so you're going to keep rolling the dice with that. Right. Um, the president has been on the road a lot lately um, uh, at, at, at these campaign rallies. Yeah. Um, some of them, you wonder why. I mean, is, is this about 2018 or 2020 for him? It's interesting. I was uh, there Friday night in Cincinnati. Um, wasn't there on Saturday. But he does spend a lot of these rallies sort of recounting his 2016 victories, which suggests that this might be a little bit about setting himself up for, for 2020. But uh, but I, I do think that, um, you know, he's going to states and districts that have vulnerable Republicans or vulnerable Democrats. So later this week, uh, we're headed back out to Montana, North Dakota. You're going to see Heidi Heitkamp again kind of on her heels. Uh, she's a really vulnerable Democrat in that Senate, Senate race there. Um, so, you know, I think there is a strategic vision behind this from the White House. At the same time, I think they sort of concede that uh, they face an uphill battle in the House. Uh, but it's certainly not out, outside the realm of probability or it, it it seems probable that they will, the Republicans could pick up Senate seats. Uh, and, and I think that's the president's main focus right but now. But for example, he went to Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Erie, Pennsylvania. Is it? I, I'm going to just tell you right now, right? <laughs> Bob Casey is going to be reelected yes. senator from Pennsylvania. Uh, I think there's some house races out there. But yes, I agree that that, that might not be the best use this time unless you're looking at the sort of 2020 picture where retaining states like Pennsylvania and Michigan are going to be crucial to his ability to, to be reelected. He said something in uh, Ohio the other night. Uh, referencing Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court, uh, that that he, re- he repeating something he said last week, which raised a lot of eyebrows, um, but he's still at it, suggesting that uh, okay, I've got two justices down. You ain't seen nothing yet, to uh, borrow a phrase. We could have two, three, maybe even four more choices, <laughs> and we have to be able. To get the votes to put them through, go out and vote. First of all, these idiots in the crowd cheering that they have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, but how can he? How can he look, look at that court today? How can he claim, un, unless they have a bad case of Legionnaires' disease or something striking the court, that he's going to have four more appointments to the Supreme Court? Well, uh, I guess I mean if we want to if we want to walk through it, I mean there there's certainly a lot of speculation that Clarence Thomas will retire, uh, giving Donald Trump a, a third sort of shot to uh, name a justice. Yeah, but replacing one conservative with sure. another. Yeah. Although again, it elongates the sort of conservative yeah. control of the court. For and another. of course, everybody's worried about Ruth. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, uh, most of the, with the exception of the the justices that were appointed by President Obama, uh, the Demo- the not Democrats but Democratic leaning justices on the court. There's a couple of them that are sort of well, elderly yeah. and uh, Stephen Breyer and and Ruth, Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg. But then um, after that, you're looking at fairly young judges. So by the for, way, I, I looked this up. So uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 85, as we yeah. know. Stephen Breyer is 80. Uh, the next oldest justice. Uh, is um, 
Oh wait, no, sorry. No, so so Clarence it's, Thomas it's Clarence is, Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's right. Clarence Thomas. Yeah. But after, after that, that, right? Right. Like Samuel Alito is sixty-eight. Sonia Sotomayor is sixty-four. It's sure. I think uh, Kagan's younger than yeah. that. Yeah, they, you she's, know. Yeah, Gorsuch is in his fifties, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, those are three, right? So, like, let's let's say Donald Trump is reelected. Um, that's six years, six additional years uh, of a presidency. So that puts Ginsburg at eighty nine, right? Uh, yeah, you know, well, it it gets in. Uh, this is a very grim discussion, although it often is around Supreme Court cases. But it is certainly it is certainly reasonable to think that a two term Donald Trump presidency could see three more Supreme Court. It's just that it's unreasonable to think of a two-term Donald Trump presidency, well, <laughs> I would add. I would add that. so, but it's just kind of strange that I think that he makes that he keeps going up to like four, four. But even more than his than his comments at the at these rallies, what's been getting attention is this uh, his interview last night with Leslie Saw in sixty minutes. First of all, um, in dealing with the Saudi issue, which is the number one news issue yeah. today. Um, he says, well, you know, we don't know a lot, and they do deny, 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 deny. Therefore, I guess sort of take it with a grain of salt. Here's the president in response to uh, uh, his, Leslie's first question about his, his reaction. And we would be very upset and angry if that were the case. As of this moment, they deny it, and they deny it vehemently. Could it be them? Yes. It's, it reminds me of what he said about Roy Moore, right? Well, or Vladimir yeah. Putin. You or know. Vladimir Putin, yeah. But they did, right. And you know, Helsinki, they denied the, they they denied de- the he hacking. He denies it. Yeah. What can I do? He denies it. What can I do about Roy Moore? He denies it. What can I do about Brett Kavanaugh? He denies it. Yeah. I, you know, I think um, this is a this is a serious issue for Trump, isn't it? This is a serious issue. And I think it it. <laughs> is particularly difficult for him because he and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, have really made um, the current regime in Saudi Arabia and the crown prince the sort of linchpin of their foreign policy. So it's not just U.S.-Saudi relations. It is reversing the sort of warming that happened under the Obama administration towards Iran with the Iran nuclear deal. It's uh, using Saudi as the sort of financer of Jared's Middle East peace plan when it is finally revealed. And it is a ton of regional issues uh, that the the White House sees Saudi as sort of their anchor in, in the region as, and, and the people who are going to help them sort it out. And this isn't the first time that we've, you know, looked the other way. I mean, Saudi Arabia has been conducting a campaign that has involved thousands of civilian casualties at a rate that I think the U.S. would in Yemen. In Yemen, that that the U.S. would raise an alarm about uh, if it were almost any other country. And so, you know, this is just the latest iteration of of why it's uh, a really difficult foreign policy challenge for the president. Uh, and this is not, I mean, to be fair to Donald Trump, the first U.S. president who has found that um, a partner in a difficult region has turned out to create a lot of headaches for them. That's something that's been a pretty fairly constant throughout U.S. Mm-hmm. history, but it's one that is now on Donald Trump's doorstep and that he's going to have to deal with. And I think he is aware of the fact that both within the Republican Party, within the Democratic Party, certainly, and within the sort of greater community, you know, D 
DC community at large that he is going to face a lot of criticism if he shies away from imposing uh, serious steps if the sort of intelligence that, that has been reported by the Post and by other outlets bears out and that it seems pretty obvious that, that the Saudis were involved in now, this. One thing we've talked about a little earlier when we were talking about with Medea Benjamin in the last half hour too, though, is that the president is um, stunningly candid in why uh, he hasn't been more critical of the Saudis and, and why he may hesitate uh, because basically, and as our mutual friend Peter Baker points out in the lead analysis in this morning's New York Times, look, he made a deal and yep. this could screw the deal. Here he is. They are ordering military equipment. Everybody in the world wanted that order. Russia wanted it. China wanted it. We wanted it. We got it. So we got the deal, and you know, the part of the deal was we wouldn't say anything about all their human rights abuses. We wouldn't even even talk about it, and they would buy buy ten deal. billion dollars yeah. or whatever it is of American weapons. Uh, although, with, of course, there's the devil. Yeah, and there are there's. Uh, I think critics would note that um, a lot of that deal might have happened regardless of the president going over there. And that it is unlikely to actually hit. Uh, I think it's 110 billion is what the president yeah, claims. Yeah. Uh, it's unlikely to hit those levels. Um, but uh, you know, for Donald Trump, that trip to Saudi, which was his first as the as president of the United States, was a big symbolic moment of him coming in and saying, you know, I'm the deal maker in chief. I'm immediately helping to sort of restart uh, American jobs. And I know that, you know, certainly here in the D.C. region, there's a lot of defense contractors that are watching closely to see how this plays out. But um, I'm not, you know, uh, that's a that's a political calculation as well. And, and we will see. It's possible that the president can find other ways. He's mentioned that he could to could be sanctions on top Saudi officials, expelling diplomats, that sort of thing. But I think a lot of people are going to be watching, certainly as more information comes out, to see if that response seems adequate to what what appears to be taking a journalist into a consulate and chopping him up with a bone saw, right? I mean, that's a really sort of grim counterweight to, to whatever the administration does. So, Justin, um, as a friend, if you're invited to the Saudi embassy here <laughs> for, for a little talk, um, my advice is, don't go, <laughs> please. Don't go. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's uh, and, and, the embassy and, party circuit has gotten a, a, a little <laughs> more, a little yeah. more dangerous than you might have thought. That's right. Yeah. If the White House Correspondents Association has one of those receptions at the Saudi <laughs> embassy, uh, I'm not going. Uh, but you know, it. Um, there was also apparently, U.S. intelligence agencies had intercepted. Um, Communications. communications that the Saudis were trying to convince Mr. Khashoggi to come back to Saudi Arabia and yeah, and, and then we'll take he, care of you and have a serious talk. And he didn't trust them exactly. to do that. But, um, yeah, and I think that that is contributing to the sense that not only uh, were the Saudis responsible for his disappearance, but uh, that this was something that was sanctioned and ordered at a high level in the Saudi government, which of course complicates you know, the math for the U.S. is they, they calibrate the response, but also um, sort of brings into stark contrast the fact that uh, if you are dealing with the crown prince, that the, these are the sort of calculations that he's making. And there are some interesting comments last night, too, about, with the, about from the president to Leslie Stahl about 
uh, members of his cabinet, uh, particularly the um, there's been rumors, of course, that um, after the midterms, um, Jeff Sessions might go. He just sort of said to that, basically, we'll see what happens, right? Yeah. No commitment. We'll see what happens. And there have also been rumors about James Mattis, defense secretary, um, the last surviving adult in the room from the original cabinet, at any rate, some people say. Uh, his comments on Mattis were not exactly, I don't think, the strongest you might expect. Uh, here he is. It could be that he is. I think he's sort of a Democrat, if you want to know the truth. But General Mattis is a good guy. We get along very well. He may leave. I mean, at some point, everybody leaves. Everybody. People leave. That's Washington. <laughs> but, you know, sort of sometimes the worst thing that Donald Trump could say about anybody is to call them a Democrat. Yeah. I mean, he is voicing an, an opinion that is certainly widely held within the White House. I have heard somebody really? in the White Did House they? tell me that they find James Mattis to be they think he would be too far left for a Hillary Clinton secretary of defense. So there's. There are certainly people within the White House, and as the national security apparatus of John, John Bolton. Bolton kind of locks into place, uh, there's a real resistance to to Secretary Mattis. Um, is it because Mattis is not the automatic yes man that Donald Trump wants? I don't know if it's that he is not an automatic yes man as much as he has a distinctly different view of how and when U.S. power should be used. Um, and... Uh, especially in contrast to somebody like John Bolton, who obviously, as we saw in the Bush years, is somebody who sees inter military intervention as something that, that should be considered more quickly. And so when Donald relevant. Trump says we should invade Venezuela, James Mattis would say, or <laughs> did say, yeah, that maybe may not, not be the yeah. best idea. John Bolton might say, yeah, yeah, roll. And, and we know that, you know, James Mattis has sat on... Um, things that the president wanted to do. We saw that with the transgender ban in the military where uh, I think pretty explicitly the Defense Department was slow walking that and there was frustration at the White House uh, that the president's decision wasn't sort of mm -hmm. being implemented. That said, uh, obviously these rumors have been swirling for a while yeah. and a interesting moment was when the Woodward book came out and there was you know stories of Mattis being criticized critical of the president there. And Mattis came out very quickly with a, a statement sort yeah. of denying it and uh, saying a lot of really nice things about President Trump. I was there that day and President Trump was genuinely touched by that. I think a point that he made was that Mattis is somebody who doesn't, didn't need to put that statement out, right? He is somebody who's relatively secure and is, is standing and, you know, Unlike maybe some aides in the White House, didn't didn't need to do that. If yeah. he had just said, "I'm not responding to these rumors," I don't think anybody would have thought twice about it. And so that was a moment that I think Mattis's stock rose with Donald Trump, and I think he went from being somebody who was on the front burner in terms of I'd like to sort of rework my cabinet to to farther on the back burner. Well, the one who is out the door, it looks like, is the White House Counsel Don McGahn. Right. Uh, why? Again, another top White House aide leaving less than two years into the presidency. Well, White House counsels do turn with some regularity, and we know that this White House counsel in particular has had a tough job, uh, has been 
yeah. uh, intimately involved in the Russia investigation and that that has caused a lot of um, friction, both with the president's legal team and the president himself. Uh, there's a lot of second guessing about his approach, which was to say the White House is an open book. There's right. a, a fear by many that 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 is sort of that he was too nice to Mueller in the beginning, exactly, and that that's given him uh, fodder and material to continue an investigation beyond what the president seems sees as a reasonable amount of time. Uh, so I think he. Do we know anything about the new guy, uh, Cipollini? Yeah. I don't know a ton about him, I will say. What I do know is that he is a veteran of sort of big legal actions. So he, um, I think when Equifax um, uh, released a bunch of user data, he was part of the team that, that sued them over that. And so I think he, what, what he, he's seen is useful for this Russian investigation. He, he may be stepping into the biggest legal action <laughs> of his entire career. He just a lot more uh, territory to cover, but uh, no more time. So... Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Well, let's get back me. to work at the White House today uh, at Bloomberg, Bloomberg.com. Yep. Bloomberg.com. That's it for Monday, folks. Have a great Monday. Come back and see us again tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.